0: I'm a puzzle person and transactional law is kind of like putting together puzzles. And so it, it, especially with mergers and acquisitions, there are so many moving pieces that of the puzzle that you have to fit together, that it's just, it's challenging and it's fun and rewarding.
1: That's John Siebers, a shareholder and attorney at Rhodes McKee. John's specialty is mergers and acquisition.
0: And usually... In the sale or purchase of a business, it's a team a team effort, so mm-hmm. you're working with multiple other advisors, you're working with your clients, um, other attorneys, investment bankers, business brokers, bankers, CPAs, all those people. So mm-hmm. you get to work with a lot of different people. It's just fun.
1: Today on Conversations with a Business Attorney, we are talking about everything you need to know when it comes to selling your business. I'm your host and fellow business owner, Jeff Large. For my discussion with John, I want you to listen for a few key things. Many aspects of your business can affect its value and its ability to be sold, and I was actually surprised by a few that John listed. Negotiations play a big part of the sale, and there are many nuances in deal making that you can use in your favor. And even if you never plan on selling your business, you'll see that there are many benefits if you run your business like you want to sell it. So John and I start with the basics. What does it actually mean to sell your business?
0: A sale of a business typically involves either an asset sale where the business, the entity itself is selling the assets it owns or it involves the sale of the equity in the business itself. So a stock sale or an asset sale. So
1: like what's the practical difference?
0: The example that I often use is, If in an asset sale, think of a couple of buckets. You've got a bucket in your garage with a bunch of soccer balls and basketballs and footballs in it, and somebody wants to buy those from you. In an asset sale, they bring their own bucket, and they simply empty your bucket of balls into their bucket. In a stock sale, they buy the bucket itself, including all the balls that are in it.
1: Okay, okay. One other thing I sort of wanted to set the premise on is who needs to
0: know about selling a business? Typically, we're working with the business owners themselves, but um, it could be an investor in a business. It could be a lender that is um, involved in the business. It could be. Some other person that has some interest in the business, but usually it's the the owner of the business that we're working with or their management team.
1: What, what I'm kind of wondering: say I don't have intention of selling, mm. is there any reason that I should listen to this episode?
0: Well, you're going to exit your business one way or another at some point, either you know on a stretcher. If you hold on to it past your death Mm -hmm. or you're gonna sell it or transfer it to a key employer to a family member so even if you're not thinking about selling now usually a a sale process and preparing a business for sale it takes a period of months if not years to do it properly Mm
1: -hmm.
0: so even if you're not thinking of selling in the next three four or five years now is the time to start thinking about it in fact we tell people the time to start thinking about your your exit is when you form the business because you always want to kind of have a game plan in place for how this is going to end okay and and how you want it to end may impact what you do while you own the business
1: if we were beginning here at the kind of the front of this setting Mm -hmm. the framework what are some situations that people find themselves in where they're going to need to sell you said death obviously is one of them right
0: what else well, in the ideal scenario, they have um, gotten to a point where they're financially stable and they have other things they want to do in their life, and they're prepared personally to sell, the business is prepared to sell, and so it's a, a deliberative process. That's the best case scenario. The The worst case scenario is when someone dies and they own the business. I've sold a number of businesses uh, on behalf of the surviving spouse. That's never fun because they don't usually know the ins and outs the way that the the former owner did. Kind of the intermediate ground or the the middle ground in terms of best to worst would be um, something other than death happens in your life. You are burned out, a key employee quits, you have health problems, the business is in a downturn. There's a recession and you don't want to go through that again. You've been through the the great recession, you've been through COVID and you don't want to go through another downturn like that. So you just want to get out as soon as possible.
1: So it sounds like this topic is beneficial for any business owner Correct. Um, in general, whether you plan on selling or not. I know I've firsthand seen and even worked with different coaches who typically when you even if you don't have intent of selling, your business will often get better when you prepare it to sell, um, if that makes sense. Like you'll just just run a better business. And so I'm sort of curious, like, again, at this baseline stage, even if you don't plan on selling per se, what are some basic things that we should have in place from a legal standpoint that can help us along this journey of, like you said, being ready to do it when the time comes?
0: I think first thing you need to do is make sure that you have a plan that you put in your desk for what happens if you pass away. So whether that's a plan with your spouse, whether that's a plan with your business partner, whether that's a plan with your key employee, have some plan in place for what's going to happen if you pass away suddenly. Mm -hmm. Because that kind of covers that emergency scenario where everybody has to drop everything and figure out, all right, what are we left with here? So-and-so has passed away. What are we supposed to do next?
1: Just to clarify, Mm -hmm. is it something that I can... Draft myself? Or are we talking that I should be working with an attorney to create this plan?
0: I would be working with an attorney and a CPA, and there are a lot of exit planning consultants out there as well that can help with that. The other thing is preparing your business. You mentioned before, if you are working on your business and trying to prepare it for a sale, a lot of times you're improving the business, and one of the improvements could be that you're improving your your um, profitability, and So looking at your business, figuring out what can we do to increase our earnings. Most companies, when they sell, they sell the valuation is based at least in part on what their earnings have been in the past and what their projected earnings are in the future. But the more your earnings are, obviously, the more you're going to get for your company. Mm -hmm. Um, So looking at ways to improve your earnings from a legal standpoint, just making sure your books are clean, Making sure that if you, have a, if you have a partner, that you have a, a good buy-sell agreement in place that talks about what happens if, if a death or a disability or a bankruptcy or divorce occurs. If you have key employees the business is really dependent on, making sure those key employees are tied to the business in some way. And that can be done either through a carrot, through incentives, or through the stick you know, the the carrot or the stick, um, the stick is typically gonna be a non-compete type of a a restriction.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, all right, there's a lot of places that I think we can dive into. I wanna back up just a tiny bit, though. Yep. Um, I'm assuming that we we will have another episode that we're discussing succession planning, and so we'll likely cover that there as well, but just to get your take, what are some basic things, or what should this plan that you mentioned, what are the things that that should cover?
0: It typically a, a plan would cover what events trigger the plan. So is it just a death? Is it a death or a disability? Is it a death, disability, divorce, other involuntary transfer? It should address who has the either the right or the option to purchase the business and the timing of that, and it should talk about the value. What's the purchase price? Is the purchase price uh, determined based on a formula? Is the purchase price going to be determined through a valuation? Is the purchase price going to be agreed on annually by the, by the partners? It usually talks about how the purchase price is paid too. If it's cash at close, if it's cash and you know, 10% down and then the rest on a note, those are usually addressed in that plan.
1: You mentioned a few. But in terms of doing some of this baseline preparation, you've seen it um, obviously make it easier in the Mm. case of an emergency. You've seen it increase profitability. What other results, like positive results, have you seen in businesses that begin this process?
0: Another thing that we recommend that clients do is look at their contracts and see if if they have issues with, with customers in their contracts. Customers or vendors or if they don't have contracts at all. Can they go out and get contracts a lot of times if you have a contract that locks in a revenue stream your company is going to be viewed as less risky and therefore more more valuable to a Mm -hmm. buyer. So looking at your contracts and figuring out where are risks and where can we clean things up. It's going to make it better for a buyer and it's probably going to make it better for you as the seller while you still own the company as well. Another thing that we typically recommend is that For key contracts, you look at the assignability clause in the agreement. A lot of contracts state that you can't assign that contract from one party to another unless you get the other party's consent. So if you're leasing property from XYZ leasing company, you can't assign your lease to the buyer of your company without XYZ leasing company's consent. So those are things that can, you know, create roadblocks in a transaction third-party consent requirements. So getting an idea of what those are in your company and if you can avoid them, trying to avoid them. Mm -hmm. Like if you're renegotiating a lease for five years and you think you're going to want to sell in the next two or three years, you need to pay very close attention to the assignability clause in your lease.
1: As you can hear, there are many things you can do as a business owner to improve the value of your company and getting it ready for a sale. Things like making sure your accounting is clean and that you review the contracts you have in place with all of your clients and all of your vendors. You also want to make sure that you have an understanding of your intellectual property and patents.
0: Looking at if you've got valuable IP that's either in or outside the company, making sure you understand who owns that and what it takes to transfer it. So a lot of times patents are held by the individual and in- inventor mm-hmm. of the, the product rather than by the company and if that's going to be valuable and increase the value of the company do we want to put that contract or that patent into the company before we sell if you have valuable logos trademarks other things like that that are not registered should you go out and register them so that they have more protection and thus more value for a buyer and usually if the the owner of the patent is the owner of the company it's it's an easy you know, transfer. The the bigger issue is if you've been using a trademark or a trade name for years and you've never registered it, when you go to sell, the buyer is gonna to want to know, well, is there anyone else out there that could be using this trademark or trade name? And if so, that decreases the value of it to me. So by going out and doing that registration process and figuring out, do we have exclusive rights to this and in, in trying to lock in those exclusive rights? can help you when you go to sell the company.
1: Mhm. All right. What about who are typical buyers for a business?
0: Well, there's a whole spectrum of buyers and and one thing I would say is that every buyer is not right for every seller. I think most sellers don't understand that that different buyers bring different things to the table. As a seller, you really need to figure out what your goals are. What's your what are your goals that you're looking to achieve in the sale of the business? Are you looking to maximize profit? Are you looking to maintain the legacy of your family business that's been running in the family for three generations and you want that business to continue to be a shining example in the community? Do you want to protect your employees and make sure that the buyer doesn't come in, buy your company, shut down the plant, and move all the jobs to California? So those are different goals that buyers often or that sellers often have in the sale. You know, your typical financial goals and your legacy goals and your employee protection goals. Different buyers can help achieve different goals. So your typical list of buyers would be a strategic buyer, which would be another company that's going to come in and buy you. A private equity group, which is essentially a professional buyer that comes in and buys your company. And most PE firms try and increase profitability over a very short window of time so that they can turn around and flip it in the next five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then there's your typical financial buyer. It could be somebody who is an executive in corporate America and they don't wanna work for a big corporation anymore. They wanna buy their own company. So it's just a wealthy individual that's coming to buy. We've seen more different types of buyers come into the marketplace in the last five to 10 years. with more and more fine, uh, family offices as buyers so family office would be wealthy families like uh, a family who's made a billion dollars with a company now they're taking that money and investing it in other companies. tribal organizations are buying businesses they're trying to take their their gaming revenues and diversify their portfolio by buying operating companies. you've got you know buyers often include family members and key employees as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I hear all that and I could tell you, I begin to get overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm yeah. curious if we go back to the intent that you were saying, if we go back to those goals, cause I'm sure the, our listener, and especially if they are considering buying, how would you advise them on each of those three? When we're looking at it from finances, when we're looking at it from legacy, and when we're looking at it as employee protection, how do those differ in terms of how you would advise me wanting to sell?
0: Okay, so I'm going to give you some general rules. There are always exceptions, but the general rule would be if you're looking to maximize your returns on the sale, a strategic buyer, you know, another company that wants to come in and buy you, it could be a competitor, it could be somebody else in your supply chain, or a private equity group would typically be the ones that can pay the highest purchase price. And there are a lot of different reasons for that, but suffice it to say... Typically your, your strategic buyers and your PE firms are gonna be paying the most. But that comes at a cost. Usually they can pay more because they're gonna get certain synergies after they close the transaction. And those synergies are usually gained by cutting costs. So they may take uh, all the productions that they have in Michigan and move them into an Indiana operation. So your legacy, your family legacy, and your protection of employees just got thrown out the window with those two buyers. Now, again, there's there's exceptions to those rules. If you want to maintain legacy and protect your employees, usually I would say a financial buyer, someone who is just gonna buy your business, they're not looking to buy your business and add it on to another business, they're buying your business as a standalone investment is going to be the best option because typically they're not coming in and looking at making a lot of changes to the company and then flipping it in a few years. The thing to consider though is some of the financial buyers have to put so much leverage on the company. If you sell to the wrong financial buyer who doesn't have the necessary financial support to to continue to operate the business post-closing, you're not doing your legacy or the employees any good. So mm-hmm. you want to make sure that Any way you go, you really vet your buyer carefully.
1: Mm -hmm. So, because you've seen both sides Mm -hmm. of of this process as a seller, what should I know about my potential buyer what things should I be considering about their point of view uh, in order to make this the best kind of agreement or the best transaction for both of us?
0: Well, I think you want to understand, number one, what's their plan for the company after they close? Are they going to shift everything from, from Michigan to Indiana? Are they going to continue to operate uh, status quo? What's, and, and if they're going to continue to operate status quo, what's their culture? Is it a good fit? Will your employees and the buyer's employees be like oil and water, or will they mesh very well together? So those are some of the things that I would look at if I was selling to a strategic or a PE firm. I would want to know how they're paying for it, you know, especially if there's going to be seller financing involved. How much debt am I going to be subordinated to? You know, how much debt does the bank collect before I get paid on my seller note? I'm going to want to know what changes they're going to make with customers and with with vendors. Are they going to come in and and uh, immediately shift all their relationships, or are they gonna try and continue the, the status quo? If you're really looking to protect your employees, you're gonna to wanna to think about and ask, what kind of salaries are you gonna be paying? What are the wages gonna look like? What are the benefits gonna be? What other things do you offer employees that I can't offer today?
1: mm mm-hmm. right, that's an interesting one. All right, so looking at sort of setting the stage of who this is appropriate for, it sounds like, in some capacity, everyone, and there's a lot of different options that we have for potential buyers there's obviously a lot of reasons that we can sell these are all things that we should be thinking through um, there's also this element of the actual payout tell, right tell me about that
0: well i would say there are three main ways that sellers get paid and a lot of times a transaction will include a combination of those ways the first is all cash at closing and that's, that's what most sellers prefer, although there may be tax reasons why deferring some of the payment into a, a later year is beneficial, but the least risky way to structure a deal from a seller standpoint is where the entire amount of the purchase price is paid at closing. In a lot of my deals, I would say, probably close to 50%, if not 50% of my deals, we have seller financing involved, Seller financing is when a seller gets cash at closing for a portion of the purchase price, and the remainder is paid after closing on a promissory note. And it's a promissory note that the the buyer signs and delivers to the seller, just like they would to their bank. So let's say your purchase price is is $5 million, and uh, you're gonna have 10% seller financing. In that situation, you would have $4.5 uh, four point five million in cash at closing, and then the balance of five hundred thousand dollars would be paid on a promissory note. And that when you're doing seller financing, you want to think about what's my collateral? Is there any collateral? Is it a secured note or is it unsecured? Am I getting a guarantee from the buyer? If they default, can I go after the buyer personally on the note? If usually there's a senior lender involved and almost always, the seller note is subordinated to the senior lender's note. So the, the bank always gets paid first. So you want to think about what's my risk that they're going to default to the bank? If the bank comes in and takes its collateral, is there anything left for me? Mm-hmm. So those are the, the considerations in seller financing. The third method of payment is an earnout. And that is an earnout happens when the buyer pays the seller some proceeds after closing dependent on some metrics being achieved in the business after closing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times it's based on earnings after closing, or revenue after closing, or customer retention, or things like that. So if if the business does really well after closing, maybe the buyer pays the seller an extra 10%, which would be treated as purchase price. If the buyer doesn't do well uh, after closing, then the seller doesn't see any of that. And and there are all sorts of considerations to think about when you're structuring earnouts. Most sellers want a, an earnout to be based on revenue because revenue can't be manipulated or by the buyer in the same way that earnings can. If you have an EBITDA-based earnout, a buyer can come in and start making changes to the company that impact the earnout and make it, or impact the the EBITDA and make it less likely that the earnout is going to get paid. Will you define that term for me? EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Okay. And EBITDA is used a lot in valuation uh, rules of thumb and valuation uh, of companies. A lot of times they will look at multiples of EBITDA and EBITDA is often used as a metric for earnouts as well. But again, I, if I'm representing a seller, I don't like EBITDA-based metrics or EBITDA-based earnouts because of the fact that they can be manipulated by the buyer.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. But I am curious in terms of kind of what you see and maybe mm-hmm. what you see more broadly, even outside of your own clients, like how do those three, three different types of transactions typically pan out like what percentage of each like you have x percent of people paying cash at the time of purchase you have x percent with version two you know what i mean like how what i guess what do what do i
0: expect as a seller so i would say in probably 95 percent of my deals all or a majority of the purchase price is paid in cash at closing
1: okay is that normal that feels high
0: well, it, when I say or a majority, that leaves room for the seller financing, too. Okay. So okay. I would say, let's say 40% of my deals, the entire amount of the purchase price is paid in cash at closing. In probably 50 to 60% of the deals that I see, there's a majority of the purchase price is paid in cash at closing, and the balance is paid on a promissory note through seller financing. Mm-hmm. And then I see earnouts in maybe 10%, of my deals, the earnouts are not as common as seller financing.
1: Yeah. Is there, it, it seems like it's almost conflicting as well. I guess it seems like in a lot of situations it would be beneficial for the seller to just get paid at the time of closing, but it seems like it's the opposite for buyers. What I'm more curious about is how does the seller align and negotiate something like this well with a buyer?
0: Well, a lot of times Notes and earnouts are used to close the gap between what the buyer thinks the business is worth and what the seller thinks the business is worth. So, if the buyer thinks the business is worth five million and the seller thinks it's worth six million, maybe we close that $1 million dollar gap with a seller note or a combination of a seller note and an earnout. Another problem that seller financing solves is when the senior lender will only loan the buyer a portion of the purchase price so let's say the purchase price is six million dollars and the bank will only loan four million dollars and the buyer has five hundred thousand in cash they've got a million five uh gap to close there and usually that's done through seller financing or in no, or no, no okay more commonly seller financing
1: another important aspect you should understand is the negotiations and the roles different assets play on how the deal should be structured
0: When we negotiate, usually I first become really actively involved in a sale when there's a letter of intent being negotiated. And I always encourage the seller to have their CPA involved in that process as well, because what we're, you know, the letter of intent or LOI will state what the deal structure is and whether it's an asset sale or a stock sale, typically from a legal standpoint, doesn't make a huge difference to the seller, but from a tax standpoint, it can make a significant difference. Mm -hmm. So when you're negotiating purchase price, you need to also think about structure and what's the net take home going to be to the seller. If you structure it in in a way that's tax disadvantageous to the seller, you may have a great purchase price, but your net proceeds are going to be lower than if you had structured it some other way.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: So that's something to consider when you're looking at getting paid.
1: Yeah, that's important. Let's double back to Mm -hmm. what we were saying about, you said asset or stock? Yep. Give me situations, when might I want to sell as an asset versus when might I want to
0: sell as a stock? So usually, and this is, again, a general rule of thumb, it's not, there are exceptions to every rule. The general rule is that buyers typically want to do an asset sale, and there are two reasons for that. Number one, There's a legal reason in an asset sale. Buyers avoid a lot of the carryover liability from the seller. And number two is the tax reason. Usually, buyers get a tax benefit in doing an asset sale because they can get quicker depreciation of their assets in, in an asset sale. As a general rule, sellers typically want to do a stock sale if they're a C corporation because a stock sale will provide significantly less taxes than an asset sale would for a C-Corp. If the seller is either an S-Corp or a partnership or a disregarded entity for tax purposes, usually there's not as big of a tax difference between an asset sale and a stock sale. From a legal perspective, it usually doesn't make that much of a difference for a seller between an asset sale and a stock sale, so it's usually the tax difference that's going to drive the decision of what's best for the seller.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, so it sounds like then, in terms of people who are helping in this process, a solid attorney, an accountant, is there anybody else that's typically involved?
0: Well, and I would say it should be... the, the accountant should be somebody who is very familiar with transactions, because there are a lot of CPAs out there that are very good at doing tax returns, but if they don't provide the type of advising that you need in a transaction, they're gonna be out of their league. So you wanna find somebody who's got a lot of experience with M&A transactions. A lot of times, the seller's bank, if they have a close relationship with their banker, will be involved in helping them kind of vet vet the, the deal. I would say in probably a majority of the the transactions that I do, there's either a business broker or an investment banker involved that is basically there to, to as the intermediary to facilitate the transaction. The personal financial advisor of the sellers, the, the owners of the business themselves, a lot of times are involved as well, just making sure that we're structuring a deal that's gonna put the most money possible into the owner's pockets, and figuring out what they're gonna do with that money after closing.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, valid point. So, obviously, the focus of of this show is the legal side of things. Mm -hmm. What... I just think anytime we're we're talking to a professional like yourself, you, you have a very unique perspective. What kind of things, as a seller, should I be looking for in the attorney that I want to hire to help me with this process?
0: Experience is the number one. So, the first thing that I would look for is an attorney who specializes in mergers and acquisitions. Um, you know, it's it's very frustrating to work with attorneys on the other side of transactions who don't do M&A deals because we're constantly trying to educate them on how things work in the M&A world. So, you want to find somebody who knows what they're doing. It's In the end, it will cost you less money to get a really good M&A attorney because they're not gonna be spinning their wheels the whole time, um, and you're gonna get a better deal as well. I think that the second is looking at the, the bench strength of the attorney. If you're looking at an m and attorney in a very small firm who doesn't have a lot of other um, specialties around them, it's harder to do big transactions. And what I mean by that is, when I represent sellers, oftentimes we'll have tax issues come up, that we need tax lawyers for. We'll have employment law issues come up that we need employment attorneys for. We'll have environmental issues come up that we need an environmental attorney on. If you don't have an environmental tax and employment attorney in your firm, it's harder to address those. Now, Rhodes McKee has all those, but a lot, of, you know, a lot of the bigger firms do as well. So that would be the next thing is looking at not only the attorney themselves, but what kind of bench strength do they have around them?
1: Mm Mm-hmm, failed points. So, we talked about a lot of the things to look for and and how to position these deals. What are maybe red flags from you going through this process multiple times as a seller, maybe especially things that I might not notice? Like, what are the red flags that I should be looking out for in deals that I potentially might enter into?
0: If I'm a seller and I'm trying to vet a buyer, here are some of the things that I'm gonna look for. Number one, do they have good people around them? Do they have advisors who know what they're doing? And, and if I can't make that determination as a seller, I'm going to ask my advisors, my attorney, my CPA, hey, have you ever worked with these people before, and do they know what they're doing? So that's one thing I'm going to look at. Another thing is, if I know that this buyer has been involved in other transactions, how did they go? Can I go and talk to somebody else that this buyer has, has done a transaction with? So a lot of times you'll see uh, private equity firms maybe rolling up businesses in a certain niche industry. Do I know other sellers who have sold their company to this buyer and if so, can I talk to them and see how did the deal go? Did the things they told me before the deal happen after the deal? You know, the assurances that they gave me, are they good to work with? So those are a couple of things. You know, I think you you want to be very cautious as a seller of dealing uh, of the financial backing of of your buyer. If the buyer doesn't have the financial resources to purchase your company, it doesn't matter how good they are to work with, you're not gonna get a deal done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think those are probably the top three that I would be thinking through.
1: Yeah what about just from the amount of times that you've either gone through this process and consulted people, what are some frequently asked questions that you see that perhaps we haven't covered yet?
0: I think a question that people ask me all the time is, when should I start thinking about selling? And we talked about that before. The, the time to start thinking about selling is well in advance of when you have to sell or well in advance of when you want to sell. The more you... Th- time you put into it and the more thought and planning that goes into it, the more options you're gonna have when you go to sell. Another question that I get all the time is, when should I bring in my attorney? When should I hire an attorney? And what I typically tell people is, I need to get actively involved with negotiating the non-disclosure agreement that the buyer is gonna sign and with negotiating the letter of intent And from then on, I'll be very active in the transaction. Typically, the NDA, the non-disclosure agreement, is the first thing that gets signed. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of times, I'll look at the NDA, that'll get signed, and then I don't hear anything for months, because the buyer and the seller are negotiating financial aspects of the deal. The buyer may be doing some basic financial due diligence, and it's not until they have proposed valuation for the company, and at least general terms for the deal, that they come and get the attorney involved. But the earlier that I'm involved, the more I can help keep you from going down the wrong path. So whether that's you know before you sign the NDA or just before you sign the LOI, it really kind of depends on the deal. I see a lot of sellers who say, I want to sell within the next year or two, but I want to put my team together now. So I want to have an M&A attorney, I want to have an experienced CPA, and any other advisors, whether it's a business broker, an investment banker, I want that team to be assembled now so that when I am ready to pull the trigger, I don't have to scramble to find the right people to work with me.
1: One thing I've learned from both the coaches I've worked with and from conversations like these is that it's in your best interest to run a business like you're going to sell it, even if you're never actually going to.
0: I talk to clients all the time that don't have any intention of selling in the next 10 years but they've engaged me. In addition to being having a focus on mergers and acquisitions, I do a lot of general outside counsel type stuff Mm -hmm. where I'm helping clients with their operating agreements and shareholder agreements and things like that. So having an attorney that can see kind of the big picture of the life cycle of the business, Mm -hmm. looking at their general corporate law issues as well, I think is beneficial. A lot of companies don't have a plan and don't have a team, and they wait until two months before they sell, and then they say, I'm ready to sell. I better put together a team. It's never too late to do that. I mean, I've had deals where a, a seller has coming to me and said, I need to close within two weeks, can you help me? And I've helped them close that quickly. That's not ideal, but it can happen. But again, the longer ahead you start planning for it usually the better off the transaction is going to be
1: okay so so it sounds like then maybe as you're vetting your attorney to if if you think it's even like a dream at some point Mm -hmm. the sell, um somebody that maybe has that broader scope alongside those like specialties that you've talked about okay that makes more sense that makes more sense
0: or if they don't themselves, they have colleagues in their firm that do.
1: True, yeah. true. Like you said, kind of who they're, who's on their team. Mm-hmm. So that's really important. So one more that I wanted to ask uh, kind of in this vein is, what are the things that you wish clients were a little more informed on before they came to talk to you?
0: There are a couple of things that take a lot of coaching in an M&A transaction. The first is networking capital adjustments and what the role is of networking capital in the business. What does that mean? So networking capital is... The, the example that I often give is, if you're selling a business, the buyer is gonna assume that there's a certain amount of networking capital that's included in the purchase price. In the same way that when you go to buy a car, you're gonna assume that there's a certain amount of gas in the gas tank. If you buy a car that has no gas in it, it doesn't run, it doesn't matter how great the car is, it's not gonna be valuable. So, usually a buyer is gonna want some reasonable amount of working capital, and the most common forms of working capital are gonna be inventory and receivables minus payables. But usually, there's a whole section in the purchase agreement, whether it's an asset sale or a stock sale, that talks about how we're gonna determine what that normal amount of working capital is and what's gonna happen if you sell the business, if when we close, the business has more or less than that normal amount of working capital. And working capital for a lot of sellers is really hard for them to get their heads around. So that's one thing that I think, if if I was, uh, you know, coaching people on things to look into before they go to sell, they should look into well, what's the role of working capital in an M and A transaction? Another would be um, the role of the allocation of purchase price in an asset sale. The IRS requires the buyer and the seller to allocate the purchase price over various, there are seven asset classes that the IRS says you have to allocate the purchase price across. And how you dump the purchase price into those seven buckets impacts the taxation of the buyer and the seller. And in stock sales, there are certain stock sales where if you make a certain type of an election, it's called a 338 election. It's a stock sale from a legal standpoint, but it's taxed as an asset sale. So in an asset sale or in a stock sale with a 338 election, you have to have an allocation of purchase price. And that can have a big impact on the net take-home to the seller because it impacts their taxation.
1: What about final tips? What would you like to leave the listener
0: with? Most of my seller clients, their company is by far their biggest asset, and they need to understand that selling a company takes time, and it's time-consuming, and it's complicated. So you want to make sure that you have the right team, and you also want to think about how am I going to meet the demands of the buyer during the due diligence process and run the business at the same time? Can it be done? If I can't do it myself, do I need to loop in one or two key employees who can help me? Those are things that you need to consider. If I can't run the business and respond to all the diligence requests of the buyer at the same time, something's gonna suffer. Either the business is gonna start to go down, which no buyer likes to see, or you're gonna tick off the buyer because you're not being responsive. So trying to figure out, who can I trust? At what point do I bring them in? I mean, the general rule is that you don't tell your employees, your customers, or your consultants, or your vendors until after the deal closes. But there are exceptions to the rule, and one of those exceptions for employees is, who do I need to help me in order to get this deal done?
1: A big thanks to John Siebers for sharing his time and expertise on today's show. If you have any questions about selling your business, consider reaching out to John or one of his peers, and you can learn more at RhodesMcKee.com. I'll make sure that link is in the show notes. Conversations with a Business Attorney is a project from Rhodes McKee, and it's produced by Come Alive Creative. Big thanks to Rachel Workman, Isidore Nieves, Elaine Moore, and everyone who helped make this show possible. I've been your host, Jeff Large. Last, please do me a favor, if you actually found this helpful, share it with somebody else who might need to hear what we talked about today. Your share goes a long way.